Welcome to the Scientific American Podcast Science Talk, posted on February 26, 2014. I'm Steve Mursky. Earlier today, NASA announced that its Kepler mission had discovered 715 new exoplanets orbiting 305 different stars, which immediately made obsolete some of the details of the discussion you're about to hear with journalist Lee Billings. Lee is the author of Five Billion Years of Solitude, The Search for Life Among the Stars. And even though the specific numbers of exoplanets we now know about is different from when we recently talked, the larger points remain, well, larger and on point. We spoke at Scientific American. I think a lot of people have heard of the Drake Equation, but what was new to me in reading the book was the story behind the Drake Equation. Basically, he comes up with it in in the couple of days before this big conference he had organized. Tell the story. It's really interesting. So that's the story that that he's told. um, Well, first, tell tell what the Drake Equation is for anybody who doesn't know. Yes. So the Drake Equation is something that that the radio astronomer Frank Drake uh, came up with um, really right after his uh, first search for extraterrestrial intelligence. Uh, he was the first guy to really uh, get the notion of pointing a big radio telescope at nearby stars to look for radio transmissions from other uh, cosmic civilizations that might be out there. And uh, shortly after he, uh, he did that, uh, that was called Project Ozma back in the early 1960s, he, had a, uh, he organized a meeting um, that was taking place at the Green Bank Observatory, uh, where he worked, and invited all these luminaries to come come and help him figure out what the chances were for SETI to be successful. So some of the people who came... SETI, Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. Yes, yes, yes. If I... Yes, Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. And uh, he invited people like Carl Sagan, who at the time was probably the least famous, least renowned person who showed up. Uh, there he was were, 27. He was, yeah, very right. young, 27 at the time, but he was already making his mark. Um, he invited uh, three uh, Nobel Prize winners, actually, well, two Nobel Prize winners, uh, Harold Urey and, uh, oh gosh. Josh Lederberg. That's right. <laughs> See, you know my book better than I do, uh, mm-hmm. Josh Lederberg. And then actually a third person got the Nobel Prize as they were meeting, and that was, uh, I believe, Melvin Calvin. So there were three noblists there. There were a handful of other people there, and they all came together to try to just hammer out what the chances were that SETI could be successful. So before the meeting, uh, Drake secluded himself in his office and was scribbling with some paper and started to put down the different uh, variables, the different things that could influence whether or not SETI could be successful. So those are things like the uh, the rate of star formation in the universe, how often abodes of life form, the number of stars that bear planets, the number of planetary systems that have habitable planets, the number of habitable planets where life actually arises. And uh, it's a series of, 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 of little variables like that, and you kind of string them all together, and it'll give you some estimate at the end when you multiply them all together that will maybe not tell us how many alien civilizations are in our galaxy, but it will certainly quantify our ignorance, so to speak. It will tell us what we know and what we don't know. Now, these variables, you, back when he did it, what year is it approximately? I think what? it was 1961. Okay, so, you know, you're spitballing a lot of the variables compared to the kind of information that we have today, which is still pretty dicey. That's right. That's right. And and if you look at the equation kind of left to right, you know, it does start with things like star formation, planetary system formation, habitability on a planet, uh, the rise of life. These are things that, that uh, as we progressively sweep kind of 
through the equation, it starts with things we know very well. We know pretty well the rate of star formation in the Milky Way. We we even knew back then that we suspected that planets were common around stars. We didn't really know, but we suspected. And now we kind of do know that. Uh, and you move further down the equation, you get things that are really just in the realm of the social sciences that don't have anything to do with astronomy. So you get things like uh, how long a civilization lasts, uh, whether or not a civilization develops some kind of technology that we can detect, uh, how often intelligence arises out of life, simple life arising. So uh, we still don't know a lot of uh, kind of the latter aspects of the equation, but, you know, maybe we could close in on those relatively soon. And that's really what the book's about, about this quest to try to find our place in the greater outward universe. So the equation, even at the time, though, yielded some interesting estimates. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's funny because it all ended up coming down to L. So each one of these little variables in the equation has uh, a little uh, n a number or, or rather letter associated with it. So something like the um, the number of habitable planets, I believe, is called uh, um, N sub E. And, and, you know, so there's all these different little variables and they all have these little names. And the thing is, is that they all kind of seemed to cancel each other out when uh, when they were considering the possible values that were within uh, the realm of, of reason. And what ended up coming to – they ended up coming to a conclusion essentially that uh, what really seemed to dictate the number of, uh, I guess, other civilizations that we share the Milky Way with was how long a civilization, a technological civilization like ours typically endures and survives on its planet. Uh, and, and the reason behind that is a little complicated. But essentially, if you think about it, the, the Milky Way galaxy is you know about 100,000 light years wide, I think. It's got hundreds of billions of stars. Well, let's say that the nearest civilization to us is 50,000 uh, light years away, halfway across the galaxy. Well, if if a civilization only lasts, let's say, 25,000 years, it's quite a long time. But let's say, you know, technological civilization lasts 25,000 years. That means that we could see them out there. Maybe their, their signals would get to us if they were broadcasting at us. But by the time that they got to us, they'd already be gone. <laughs> right. If the, by the time it got here or... By the time we sent something back, that's right. There's a certitude yeah. that no one would be there to hear it. <laughs> so it, it, yeah, it just all seemed to come down to the question of how long um, how long civilizations can last on on planets, and uh, that was that was kind of the conclusion of, of the conference. And, and and you know, of course, in terms of actual values that were bandied about, uh, I think Drake kind of had a had a moment where he stood up and basically said, "Okay, well, it could either be you know a few tens of thousands of years." On the outside, uh, or you know, maybe maybe it could be geologic timescales that that uh, that civilizations can last. Maybe if they manage to somehow get through their technological adolescence, that notion of you know, kind of little kids with nuclear bombs and things like that, really dangerous time. Um, maybe then they can actually endure and last for uh, you know, yeah, these geological timescales of billions of years. Maybe they can last until their sun burns out. And uh, obviously, depending on what you think the value of L is, depending on what you think the average lifetime of a civilization is, um, that greatly influences and affects what you expect to see out there. I, I forget if the quote's in the book, but uh, and I think it's from Buckminster Fuller. It says, either there's, you know, millions of other civilizations or we're the only civilization and Either way, it's pretty mind-boggling. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Bucky Fuller said that, and then uh, Arthur C. Clarke had his own version. Uh, you know, either either prospect is terrifying. Right. So 
Yeah, it, you know, it's something that's, that's a pretty common thing, I think, to think about in science fiction and in science. Uh, but, you know, we don't really know, obviously, the answer yet. We only have a sample size of one. We can only look at ourselves and the trends in our own societies right now um, and look at what we're doing to the planet and, and try to extrapolate from that. And is that scientific? Uh, you know, it's, a pr- it's pretty dicey. So the book basically is in two large parts. There's the the uh, search for ex- exoplanets, and then there's the idea of trying to figure out whether any of those exoplanets might harbor life. But you, you tell the story uh, in many ways through these individuals who you spoke to. So why don't we just talk about some of them? Um, sure. Jeff Marcy or Greg Laughlin. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, you know, Jeff Marcy is, uh, he, we, we come to him relatively early in the story, and that's because he is one of these uh, founding figures of what I like to call the, the exoplanet boom, this this kind of miraculous area, era we're living in right now where, you know, thousands of planets are literally pouring out of, well, not literally, but they're pouring out of the sky, <laughs> and uh, we're just finding them everywhere we look. Fortunately, yes, figuratively. Yes, fortunately, figuratively. Worlds colliding is not good. But uh, Jeff Marcy, back in the in the... His program, I believe, started in the late 80s, actually, and he was looking for planets, things like Jupiter, around uh, around nearby stars. Couldn't find any. Jupiter because it would be the easiest thing to find. That's right. It's freaking big. Yeah, that's exactly, exactly. So so they're looking for kind of this thing called a, a – I like to call it a wobble, where they're looking for actually the – the motion that the planet induces upon its star as it whirls around the star. So just the, in the same way that uh, the star kind of tugs on the planet, a planet actually tugs on a star too. And uh, that wobble back and forth isn't really, really great. But for Jupiter, that's kind of the best you're going to get for our solar system. But so he and a, and a partner... Like the moon pulls on the Earth's oceans. Exactly, exactly. Same kind of thing. And uh, he and a partner, uh, Paul Butler, started looking... You know, uh, really ramping up in the early 90s, looking for, for these things, for Jupiters around nearby stars. And they just couldn't find anything. And, and, and they were just thinking, gosh, this is so hard. We're never going to succeed. We're never going to succeed. And then what happened is actually a competing team uh, led by, uh, well, there's two guys, two Europeans, uh, Michel Mayor and uh, Didier Quiloz, uh in 1995 actually found the first hot Jupiter, uh, the first exoplanet found around a, a sun-like star. And that's something that, you know, is about the size of Jupiter, but it orbits kind of hellishly close, way within the orbit of Mercury around its star. It was something that no one had really thought thought could exist through all theories of planet formation and disarray. And uh, Jeff Marcy and his partner Paul Butler went back through all their data. They had, had a, they had accumulated a lot of data by then. And they found and confirmed the planet that uh, Mayor and Kalos had found. And then they started finding more and more and more. And the pace of discovery just accelerated from there. And it's still accelerating today. And there's no real sign that it's going to slow down. So uh, we're finding new exoplanets now every week or their publication yeah. announcing the discovery of them is weekly. I mean, I would say it's almost every day now, not not necessarily publication, but but finding them. I mean, you look at the numbers. Uh, a friend of mine showed me a, a slide. He thought it was an up to date slide uh, last week. He tw- tweeted something at me and he was like, look at all the planets we found. It was from Kepler. And it was, you know, something on the order of, I think, like uh, twenty five hundred candidates, candidate planets. That was from January. Well, last week they released new data. Now it's 3,500 planets. So in that time, there's been a thousand planets added. You know, you can do it up day by day, and it, you know mm-hmm. we're finding these things every day. We found more than a thousand that are confirmed. So yeah, they're everywhere. And uh, Jeff Marcy kind of helped kick that off. And um, his story is really interesting because it kind of gets at this really tricky notion of how we're uh, kind of forced to find most planets right now, which is that 
we're finding them indirectly. We're not finding them by actually imaging the planet itself, taking a picture of it, which is what a lot of people think astronomy is about. Instead, we're finding them through these very indirect measurements, these wobbles and little diminutions of starlight and things like that that we see. Right, when um, the planet goes in front of the star, if we're at the correct orientation, you get this tiny little drop in the sunlight that or starlight that we're able to measure. And if that's a regular pattern, it's pretty clear that something is orbiting that yes. star. Yes, and, and so that's called a transit. So we have the wobbles and the transits, and they're both uh, relatively indirect. And uh, there's a statistical nature to this where, you know, you're, you're taking measurements. You have to accumulate a lot of measurements, that very fine measurements over time. Uh, and gradually a signal will emerge, in particular for these small, potentially Earth-like planets. So, you know, if it's a big hunk of gas that's orbiting hellishly close to its star, that's pretty easy to see, and that pops out really quickly. But if it's something small, it can take years and hundreds or thousands of measurements, and it'll just barely be on the cusp of statistical significance. So uh, there's lots of false starts and false positives and stories of people being fooled by planets that weren't actually there. And there's some that are in our kind of bestiary right now, potentially habitable planets that are out there that uh, some people question. And um, Jeff Marcy has kind of been to the forefront of all of that. So that's kind of what I tell in the story in the, in the, in, in the book. Um, and it goes on from there. So, yeah. and, and Guy Laughlin is this oh. theoretical astrophysicist. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Greg Laughlin actually is oh, a – Greg Laughlin. He's a guy, Greg Laughlin. He's a guy. He's a, he's a great guy, actually. He is an astrophysicist at the University of California, Santa Cruz. And one thing that's uh, special about Greg is he he's one of the deepest thinkers about this that uh, that I've ever encountered. And he he has a lot of unconventional ideas about uh, the search for exoplanets, how we can find them, where it's going to go in the future. And uh, most importantly for me, uh, one thing that makes him very distinctive is he – uh, I guess he suffers fools gladly because I, I approached him very early on and, and uh, he kind of was one of the first people to introduce me to the subject and kind of show me the potential and show me this kind of coming revolution and uh, forecast what was going to happen. So the story really quickly is that in 2007, I was talking to him kind of randomly for a, a story very slightly about exoplanets, just about how we detect them, which we've just gone through here in this podcast. And uh he had me do a little exercise where he basically said, okay, you know, take all the planets we know, take the record-holding planet each year, the, the, the lowest mass exoplanet we know year by year, and, you, you know, track that on the y-axis, graph that on the y-axis, the lowest mass one. On the, on the x-axis, you just, you know, go year by year. So what's the lowest mass one in 2007 or 2008 or 2009? And then you draw a trend line through the data. And what you get is just, just this gorgeous straight line that just leads straight down to an Earth-mass planet in 2011. Hmm. So he told me this in 2007, and I was just like, you know, oh my gosh, I really, a lot of expletives came out of my mouth when he told me that, because I was just kind of flabbergasted, because mm -hmm. here's this situation where we're about to find other, you know, Earth size, Earth mass, potentially Earth-like planets in just a few years. Mm -hmm. And and no one was really talking about it. I mean, some people in science media were talking about it, but, you know, you talk to the average person on the street, they didn't even know about exoplanets. They didn't even know that we were potentially so close to finding you know, Earth 2.0 or Mirror Earth. And uh, that just really excited me. And it kind of made me feel a little strange. You know, why was it that we were on the cusp of this potentially revolutionary discovery? And yet most people didn't know about it. So he was my my entree into the whole field. And he was the one who really introduced me to it. And uh, yeah, it kind of went from there. Now, this whole realm is not just limited to astronomers, astrophysicists. 
you talk about Mike Arthur, who's a geologist. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's that's kind of a funny story because the reason why it's not limited to astronomy and astrophysics is is because obviously the uh, we have to start from what we know. When we're looking for other Earths, that obviously implies we're looking for things like us. If you want to become an expert, if you want to know and and pontificate about Earth-like planets, you have to become an expert on the Earth. You have to really know what the Earth, uh, how it formed, what it's like, what it used to be like three billion years ago, what it's going to be like three billion years from now. And that takes us into this totally different realm where you're not talking about, you know, uh, stars uh, and galaxies and things like that so much as you're talking about, you know, dirt. Dirt. That's right. Earth. And uh, Mike Arthur is a sedimentary geologist uh, at Penn State. And it was really fortuitous, kind of totally random fluke that we that we even met. Uh, he's very involved in the uh, um, the Marcellus Shale and questions about whether or not the Marcellus Shale should be um, totally exploited uh, via fracking, hydrofracking, to release all its its deposits of natural gas. Some estimates suggest that uh, the Marcellus Shale contains enough uh, natural gas, enough recoverable natural gas, uh, to supply the U.S.'s energy needs for you know thirty years. 20 years, maybe even 100 years, depending on how much we use and whether we saw it or not. So there's and whether of, we care about yeah, the effects of global warming. Exactly. So I ended up kind of talking to him in a very roundabout fashion where I was talking to another uh, researcher at Penn State, uh, Jim Casting, who's kind of an expert in planetary habitability and how planets maintain uh, habitable climates over very, very long periods of time, over billions of years of time. And uh, Jim had to go uh, basically teach a class at one point, and he just dumped me in uh, in Mike Arthur's office, and we started talking about the Marcellus Shale, and you know, well, heck, how did how did all that carbon, how did all that energy, how did all that natural gas get locked in those rocks? What does that mean? And we just started talking about it, and I realized as we were talking that there's a big connection between that one event and this one place on the planet and kind of the, the bigger picture that we're seeing unfold around us in terms of climate change right now, uh, climate change in the past, how life uh, at times in the Earth's history has essentially reached out and gained a planetary influence, a global influence, and it's able to kind of wrench the machinery of the planet, the geochemical uh, systems of the planet into very different configurations. We're doing that right now. Uh, other organisms in the past have done that. So, you know, the um, the colonization of land by plants and, and eventually by animals kind of threw the climate out of whack and caused some glaciations and mass extinctions way, way, way before that. Uh, about two and a half billion years ago, there were these little single-celled organisms called cyanobacteria, a whole class of them, that figured out how to uh, split water using sunlight and harvest the hydrogen from the water to, to drive their metabolisms and power their bodies, basically. And what they did is they vented out all the oxygen from that. You know, water is H2O. So they took the hydrogen, they vented all the oxygen out, and that caused a huge mass extinction, uh, probably one of the greatest ones in our planet's history. It totally changed the way the planet, you know, was. We, we go from this anoxic, oxygen-free world to what we have now, where the atmosphere is 21% oxygen, and we have not just single-celled life, but, you know, big big hunks of meat that can talk to each other like you and me. So, uh, you know, the, the, the story that Mike Arthur told me showed me that, that, um, that, you know, this is all kind of one spectrum of the planet's past. And, and I guess one, one thing that's kind of interesting this is a little bit rambly, I know, but, uh, what's interesting is that this ties into what we're looking for out there. When we look for other earth-like planets, we're looking for these same signs of life, um, whether it's people, you know, whether it's something intelligent like us uh, and, and having high technology changing the planet or whether it's something like cyanobacteria or some kind of primitive life that's changing the planet. The point is, is that 
these sorts of changes that we've been discussing, the oxygenation of the Earth's atmosphere, uh, the total transformation of the Earth's cycles and parts of its surface by us, uh, these are things that in theory you could detect across interstellar distances using big space telescopes. And uh, that's, I just kind of wanted to underpin that for the reader and try to explain how they're all connected. Lee Billings and I will be right back with part two. <laughs> 